So I think all those kind of conventional wisdom things that were always taught that people tended to ignore in a really hot market because they were winning anyways kind of thing. That stuff becomes a lot more critical. But I think the main thing is you want multiple strategies that bring you to a cash flow. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life. Right Club Nation, welcome back. It is Sarah Larby, and I'm here today for the first time co-hosting together, actually the person that created a lot of my branding and marketing and everything behind the scenes, Paul Cupcuts. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm uh, really looking forward to uh, co-hosting with you and then uh, also hearing from our guests. So it's going to be fun. Amazing. Now you've also started your own podcast as well. What is it called? So I have renamed it just recently. So it's now called Personally Brandtastic. Amazing. So uh, it's aimed at real estate investors or anybody in the real estate space, but it's helping you on the marketing and branding side. Very cool. Very cool. So the Right Club is now also excitingly back in person. Uh, we are obviously doing it still online opportunities, online networking, online webinars, but we are also adding an in-person component. Check it out, therightclub.com and go to the calendars section. Uh, today's guest is Jacob Perez. And Jacob is not only a real estate investor, he's doing some really cool stuff. He's a developer now as well, buying in the US, developing in Florida. He's also a mortgage broker. And so we talk about everything in between that. Lots of great information, lots of great information for today for what's happening in this market. I hope you enjoy today's show, but don't forget, check out therightclub.com. Check out the profiles, reach out to us, communicate. There's tons of stuff on online. We also have a Facebook group. And uh, Paul, any last words before we bring in Jacob? Nope, let's get to it. All right, let's do it. Jacob, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing great. Yeah, having a lot of fun right now, a lot of conversations. So I'm sure we're going to uncover a lot uh, in the next half hour or so. Amazing. Before we started recording, you were telling me that you were uh, having an awesome party on the boat. Uh, we actually just had a fun party on Saturday on the boat as well. And, uh, you know, that's the beauty of the weather in the summer. It's always so short, though. Yeah, definitely. I can't believe uh, we're in September already. Awesome. So I'm co-hosting with Paul. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, obviously, you've got uh, your real estate investing experience. You've, you've got a mortgage background experience. But uh, for those of you that do not know, give us some insights. Yeah. So a little bit about me, I've uh, been investing in real estate for about nine years now. So I started when I was 23 years old with, uh, you know, 5% down, just trying to get into any kind of property that I can get into at the time. And that investing in real estate led to a lot of different pivots. You know, it allowed me to kind of pivot my career a bunch of different times because I had access to fallback and equity and things like that. Uh, but eventually, you know, I kept buying, starting with long-term rentals to, uh, duplex conversions, eventually started buying bigger multifamily. I've done joint ventures. And then the last couple of years, taking on some bigger projects in Naples, Florida, in some kind of like luxury style markets, which is, um, which is great because, you know, there's upside and there's also lifestyle benefit to those investments as well. So once you build a foundation, it's fun to kind of pivot towards some things that could bring you a bit of joy in your life as well. And then throughout the, the side of this journey in the last four years, I started as a mortgage agent, two years later, opened a brokerage and that's gone really, really well. Um, and that's taken up a lot of time and energy as well. So, you know, I'm seeing a lot of things 
um, for my own investment journey. And I'm learning a lot for my clients as well, kind of thing. Jacob, what, what kind of differences do you see between or have you seen between investing in Canada and now investing in the US? What are the things that people should kind of keep an eye out for? Well, I think with all real estate investors, we can easily suffer from analysis paralysis, right? And when you're looking at a market like the US, you're like, where do I start? Texas, Florida, all these different places. So I think just from a you know high level point, if you're Canadian, and you're looking at the US, you really got to narrow your focus even further because it's really hard to sit down and decide one place to invest. So for me, I had a vacation property in Naples, Florida. I bought a condo there just for leisure and myself. So that's where I decided to narrow my focus and figure out, you know, what's the best strategy in this specific market. There's probably better markets that exist out there. Um, but I think with the U.S., it's really just diversity. In Canada, we can't just move to a different province and be in a completely different tax situation, completely different weather situation, completely different political climate. Whereas in the U.S., there's so much diversity that um, every you know state represents almost like a different little country, which is really interesting. That is awesome. So with your current portfolio right now, as a real estate investor, uh, are you focusing just predominantly on the U.S. or are you still buying in Canada? And, and what are you doing exactly with your portfolio with, you know, as the market's changing? Yeah, so I definitely have, you know, just ongoing projects that are going on. You know, I recently picked up a um, a building in, in southwestern Ontario, around 23 units. So that's something where it's going to be a long term turning over one unit at a time kind of thing. Right. So I'll always be involved in the projects that, that I've already kind of like sunk my teeth into a little bit in terms of right now, I'm definitely taking a little bit of a step back in, uh, in both Canada and the U S because I'm just want to kind of see how things shake out in the next little bit. Right. But, you know, I'm, I'm in a position where I'm staying liquid so I can take advantage of an opportunity. Should it come up? I think if you're a real estate investor with a reasonably sizable portfolio, you know, you have the luxury of waiting. Whereas if you're somebody who's looking to enter the market, that's a tricky position to be in because waiting might mean you're missing opportunity and things like that. So right now I'm, I'm probably taking a little bit of a step back, but that's just because I have enough projects on the go that I don't necessarily need to be ripping more things on my plate kind of thing. Do you have any advice for somebody who is trying to get into the market or is very early investor? What, what do you think in terms of strategy or uh, type of property should they be looking at? Well, I think that, you know, all that old conventional wisdom really starts to make sense right now. So a lot of people would say, you know, run your projections with a much higher interest rate than what you're actually getting, you know, factor uh, more conservative appreciation value, things like that. So I think all those kind of conventional wisdom things that were always taught that people tended to ignore in a really hot market because they were winning anyways kind of thing, right? That stuff becomes a lot more critical. But I think the main thing is you want multiple strategies that bring you to a cash flow. So if you're doing a strategy where you need the peak uh, rental income from a short-term rental and it just can't work as a medium-term rental or it can't work as a long-term rental, those are the ones where it's a little bit tricky. And then you also have to analyze how liquid am I? So if I have a business that makes millions of dollars a year, I can take more risks on the real estate side. Whereas if I have, you know, a $50,000 a year job, then my strategy needs to be really cash flow dependent because I don't have the personal liquidity to make up for any kind of issues. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Changing strategies or pivoting, you know, it probably is, is something many investors are arguing now that have been in the market for a little bit. And you mentioned cash flow. I mean, I'm, I love cash flow and it's obviously a little bit harder as the, as the rates are increasing. What are some strategies that are still working in this market or that you're seeing either your clients or yourself doing that 
still produce some decent level of cash flow or cash flow to begin with? I think, you know, it always starts with pivoting to the right markets, right? Not trying to force an investment somewhere just because it's in your backyard, right? So moving towards those markets where you don't need a crazy high rental income in order to generate a cash flow, things like that. And then, you know, we're definitely seeing a ton of short-term rental and we're seeing a ton of midterm furnished rentals. This is one that I'm seeing a lot of investors pivot towards, but um, the Airbnb strategy as well as the medium-term rental strategy are definitely becoming the most popular. I think a lot more people would be doing more short-term rental if there wasn't that fear of all these municipalities kind of slowly turning against it one by one kind of thing, but definitely having something rented on the more short term is, is seems to be the more popular play right now. We're going to take a quick break from the show. If you're a busy real estate investor or related professional and looking to build your brand and business, reach more people and stand out from the competition, then you'll want to listen to the Personally Brandtastic podcast. I'm the host, Paul Copcut, and on the show, we talk to leading marketing experts about building your personal brand with the latest strategies and ideas. Because marketing is how you get their attention, but personal branding is why they choose you. So if you're looking to build your brand and business, then check out the latest episodes of the Personally Brandtastic podcast on your favorite podcast player or app, or head on over to personallybrandtastic.com. And now back to the show. What are the particular advantages of midterm rental versus short-term then? I think it's just that you can get a higher monthly rental income than you might if you were on a 12-month lease kind of thing. If you have someone who they just showed up to Canada, they're going to buy a house or they're going to get a long-term accommodation, but they need somewhere to stay for a few months uh, without having to worry about getting furniture, plates, dishes, things like that. You know, that can be a really good option is depending on the city you're in, right? If your city has... Uh, maybe an employer that has a lot of short-term contracts or seasonal contracts, or maybe you're in just a big city like Toronto where there's a lot of immigration. Um, that type of strategy can work in a few different types of markets. I love the midterm rental strategy. I'm, I'm pivoting a lot of my stuff to those. And then I'll tell you one of the things that I find makes sense as we're doing the Burr strategy still, uh, but now it's, you know, instead of one to two units, it's like three or four units or, or more. But I, uh, again, things could change, but I'm taking the... Um, rent controlled units. And I'm like, I'm going to furnish those, put them on the Airbnb, you know, whether it's short-term or midterm and be ready to pivot if, if short-term uh, becomes banned at some point, but the midterm opportunity, if you're in an area that has, you know, homeowners nearby, you'll likely get a lot of people that are in between construction or, or houses. Um, often they are homeowners, or if you're close to a hospital, that helps a lot. Um, but you know, the rent control piece, especially with the inflation and everything changing, you know, next year we can only do 2.5%. We're capped at 2.5% regardless. So any rent controlled units that were existing before, uh, you know, November 15th of 2018, uh, those are going to go on the midterm market for me. And then anything that's new, again, that could always change because our government always, you know, tries to, to do things uh, to make it harder for landlords along the way. Um, those I'd probably do, do long-term because um, you can increase by to market rent each year. Thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think, you know, it makes a ton of sense. Right. And you mentioned you're already projecting that you may have to pivot again in the future. Right. And that's just the nature of any business and real estate is a business, right. Just like every other type of business. Now, one really creative strategy and one of my clients was talking to me about this. I can't say I've been doing this strategy personally, but this is one really, this is just a statement to how creative some investors can get. So what he was doing is he was buying properties that 
had a zoning that could allow for hotel and was actually getting the hotel designation to get around the Airbnb bylaws and was renting out his units on Expedia.ca and websites like that, right? So there's a lot of different creative ways you can approach this um, that are legal, that fit within the guidelines so that even if the city says, you know, you need an Airbnb license or something like that, you still can get onto a short-term rental strategy. It just might need a bit more creativity. Genius. That that is creative. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. Love it. It's <laughs> awesome. Talk, talking about creativity, what about the financing side, Jacob? Because that's we're we're seeing obviously a lot of change, but I guess we're expecting to see more. Um, what are you seeing currently, and and where where do you see things heading? Yeah, it's tricky right now. You know, I I don't envy anybody. Uh, looking to become a mortgage broker right now for the first time because it's about to become one of the trickiest environments to deal with. So what we have, what we're dealing with right now, is we have interest rates rising, which the bigger effect that's having is that people are qualifying for lower price points as a result of those increased interest rates. And then on the flip side, the appraisal valuations are changing, not just because the market's changing, but in addition, the banks are asking the appraisal companies to appraise the properties in a different. Uh, evaluation criteria than they did in the past, you know? So in the past, it would always be this comparable sale price was, you know, relevant and we don't factor any kind of market appreciation, even if the market went up and we don't factor any kind of depreciation, even if the market went down, which, you know, it hadn't done that for, you know, X amount of years. Now, if it, if a comparable is, you know, over 30 days old or over 60 days old, a lot of banks want to see a market depreciation percentage applied to that former sale. And there's, there's a lot of people who are getting their houses appraised and the only good comps that exist are outside that 60 day window, right? So the market may not actually be down, but these appraisals are even tighter than they've been before. It's not these appraisers, you know, want to do things poorly. It's just, that's how they have to do their valuations now. So we're getting squeezed from kind of all angles right now. What does that mean for clients and things like that? I think it means that, you know, they're pivoting towards different types of financing strategies. So commercial, like commercial financing has been getting more popular year over year, right? So looking at those niche credit unions who will touch three unit, four unit properties on the commercial side, right? But even those types of uh, financing strategies, they have their own limitations as well, right? But it's really just, at the end of the day, it's as simple as what is the cheapest, best financing option I can get given my situation. And if I know that in advance, I can pivot an investing strategy around those metrics kind of thing. So a lot of people, you know, they're seeing a house that was discounted, that's discounted, let's say $75,000 than what it would have sold at four months ago. And they're thinking that's a deal, but then they actually run the numbers with the interest rates that are out there right now. And it's like, no, that's still an overpayment, right? So I think you just have to right now, really know what the payments look like because these interest rates have had a, a very material effect on everything. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now you mentioned three and four units commercially. Can you expand on that a little bit and then why somebody would want to potentially go that route? So I, like my, my thoughts are potentially if someone's doing like the birth strategy and they're, they entered with uh, a or B lender, but so for some reason they can't exit, uh, you know, like what are their options and then could it potentially be commercial? Yeah. So traditionally, when we say commercial, people think larger buildings, you know, 10 unit, 20 unit residential buildings. Now, if you go to, you know, a major bank, TD Bank, BMO, Scotia, whoever, and you talk to a commercial account manager, commercial advisor, and you say, hey, you know, can you 
refinance or get me a mortgage against a duplex or a triplex property. Like those banks can facilitate those types of transactions. They just often push them away because they're trying to bring in million dollar deals. They have goals that don't align with that. So if they actually did, you know, fund a deal that was that small, they would need to kind of provide a good reason upstream as to why they took on that type of, you know, lending asset or whatever it may be. But there's some niche commercial, there's some niche credit unions who are more than willing to work in like the two unit, three unit, four unit space, as long as the financials are there. So there's a lot of people where they pivoted from having a corporate life to being a full-time investor. A lot of them, they're buying really good deals with really good cash flow margins. And those deals work really well on the commercial side. Now, the deals that don't work really well on the commercial side are, you know, if you're doing a duplex, triplex in places like Hamilton or close to Toronto, where the cap rates are a lot lower, right? The valuation will be there, but the loan amount you can get won't because the cash flow margins aren't high enough on those types of properties. So if you are working in markets like Sudbury, Sarnia, Windsor, some of like these smaller markets, those work really well for commercial loans. And you have a lot of people where, you know, maybe their maximum approval price is 500,000 on the residential side, but if they buy a building that's four units and it's worth a million, but the rental comes there, they can qualify for a refinance. So it's really just, you know, is my lending options, are they better on the commercial side or worse on the commercial side? If they're better then I would pursue that option kind of thing. We're going to take a quick break from the show. Hey, Right Club members, it's Sarah Larby here, and I want to take a quick moment to introduce you to a new strategy. One of my favorite moving forward is the midterm rental strategy. It's that gray zone between the short term and all the bylaws that are happening and uh, the long term strategy and staying away from that RTA and LTB as much as possible. And I've really moved over to a lot of those as my new units are being built and ready. I furnish them and I put them on the midterm market. So it's quite different than both of the short-term and both of the long-term strategy. If you are interested in more information, we are launching a course for all of November. Send me a message, sarah at sarahlarby.com by email, uh, or you can check out the website, sarahlarby.com. Now back to the show. And now back to the show. And how are you seeing interest rates affecting the private money market beyond the, the banks and the credit unions? So we haven't seen the interest rates in the residential side push towards the, the private lending side. So it's not like we've seen the private lending side shoot up an in interest rate. Actually, the private lending space has been really competitive for a long time so, or last couple of years. So we actually see the rates coming down in the private lending space, like almost still. But what is changing in the private lending space is the loan to values. Because there's uncertainty of the market and valuations and things like that, a lot of these private lenders who used to do 80% loan to value, who might have pushed to 85% loan to value are scaling that back to 75 or 70% loan to value. So they're not necessarily jacking their interest rates up, but they are adjusting their risk profile. And it's usually reflected in the, in the loan to value. That's really interesting. Are you finding that people are now starting to panic? Like, what are you sensing out in the market right now? Yeah, there's definitely panic. Um, and it's for a few reasons. So a lot of people, they take variable rates because they like the benefits of the variable rate, the flexibility, the low penalties to break, um, the lower rates generally at the time that you get the property, right? But there's another big subset of people who took the variable rates because they couldn't qualify for the purchase price they're buying at if they took a fixed rate because the fixed rates were stress tested higher. 
And as a result, they kind of were pigeonholed into taking a variable to get the price point they needed, right? So there's certainly a lot of people where they're in this position where my rate's going up, my affordability is going down. I have a fixed income, so there's not that much outside of getting a promotion I can do to kind of push myself upwards. And they're coming to us and they're saying, hey, like, what can I do, right? And, you know, they can't qualify for a fixed product, right? Or they can switch into a fixed product with their bank, but they're just increasing their interest rate as a result. They can't really qualify for maybe a slightly cheaper variable if one exists or a static variable where the payment stays fixed because the qualification rates have changed significantly. So they're just kind of in this like sitting duck position. And there's a lot of people in that position right now. I would definitely say it just speaks to, you know, the need for budgeting, liquidity, things like that. If you're on a fixed income, right? It's in a lot of cases, just a lot riskier than being on a variable income where you can put in the extra hours, you can do certain things that maybe help you produce more money. But I think we're at the point where, people are going to have to start considering things like having a roommate when you never had a roommate before, right? Like just little things like that, where there's going to be new ways to pivot that were, you know, never on the table before. Now I think people are going to have to start to consider those things, um, you know, just to stay afloat. But like, you know, like we've talked, we've alluded to the government a lot of times in this, there's countless things the government can do to help people right now. It's just, will they do that or not is the big question kind of thing. And can you explain for people uh, about trigger rates? Because that seems to be hitting the headlines a lot right now. Yeah. So it comes back to that product I just referenced. It's called a static variable. So there's a product called a static variable rate. And the way a static variable rate works is your payment stays fixed throughout your term until you get to quote unquote, a trigger rate. So when I say your payment stays fixed, it means you know your monthly mortgage payment is $2,000 a month. Some proportion of that goes towards principal. Another proportion goes towards interest. As the interest rates rise, instead of your $2,000 a month payment increasing, what happens is that your interest portion of your payment increases and the amount of principal you're paying decreases, right? Now there's a certain point where you're no longer paying principal down and you're just paying straight interest. To, in order to maintain that fixed payment and that, and once you get to a certain point where you're, you're above a, low, a certain loan to value in the bank size, there's what's called a trigger rate. And when you get to your trigger rate, what you have to do is increase your mortgage payment. So you start paying principal down or make a lump sum payment to bring you back to a point where it could accommodate that, that monthly interest payment. So, you know, it's not something where we're really on the front lines of it as a mortgage agent, right? Because it's more between the bank and their client, right? But it's just something where um, it could come up if you're somebody who just recently bought a property with a static variable rate. But if you're somebody who took a static variable six months ago or things like that, you probably paid down considerable principal where it's going to be a long while until you're seeing a trigger rate or things like that. But everybody has the opportunity to prepay their mortgage or to get ahead of it, right? But again, it's going to come back to that one place, which is do you have the liquidity to even do that? Kind mm-hmm. of. Right. Yeah. Lots, lots of, uh, you know, lots of scary headlines for sure. I think there's lots of people that are, you know, unfortunately um, are probably, like you said, like on a fixed budget and any increases is severely affecting them. Um, and I'm not that familiar with the U S market, but like, are they experiencing similarities over there? Yeah, like the Federal Reserve has been raising the rates in the U.S. as well, right? So you're seeing a lot of similar stuff happening in the U.S. Now, the difference is that 
Canadian mortgage lending and U.S. mortgage lending is very different. And if you look back to, you know, 2008, the big short, that movie that, you know, popularized the subprime mortgages and things like that, you know, we always go, oh, man, well, Canada has a way more responsible lending uh, environment than the U.S. does. But I would actually say in this type of environment, Canada's lending style is actually riskier than the U.S. because pretty much all our mortgages are on five-year terms. So even if you got on at a low fixed rate or whatever it may be, or, or a fixed rate that you could afford, like it's going to be five years or less until you're revisiting the rates that are in the market. Whereas in the U.S., you can get a 15-year fix, a 20-year fix, a 30-year fixed, right? So a lot of people can be completely unaffected by the rate environment in the U.S., Whereas in the Canada, we're not like that. Everybody is within five years away from facing this, no matter who you are, right? So that's what the difference where it's like, we're starting to see Canada's lending environment to be a lot riskier in a sense. And we're just, a, it's just a different world up here. We have five major banks that are heavily regulated by our government. Whereas in the US, there are a lot more banks in the US, right? And it's not as pigeonholed. So I think we're starting to see some flaws in our lending system here from a risk perspective that maybe we didn't know existed before now. Do you think we'll get ever, I'm thinking of my my home country, the UK, that, I mean, the UK is now 40-year mortgages, 99-year mortgages mm-hmm. on something. Do you, do you ever see that coming into Canada? I'm not sure. One thing I've been kind of floating around in conversation as an example with a lot of my clients that I've said, hey, you know, like there's a lot of ways the government could help people without bringing the rates down. They need to keep the higher rate environment to tackle inflation. There's a lot of things they can do to still help people. So one of the examples I was going to give is that all they have to do is say, hey, we regulate all the major banks. So anyone who has a mortgage with a major bank um, can extend their amortization to 40 years without any qualification criteria, right? If they give everybody that option. And then, but then on the flip side, say, no new buyers can get a 40-year amortization because that's just going to put gasoline on the market, have the prices go up, right? So, but that would be one little thing the government can do to help people out during this time while still trying to maintain um, their goals, which is tackling inflation through what seems to be their only tool they use, which is raising the interest rates, right? So that would be one little thing the government can do that. So could I see that stuff happening? Like, yeah, like, you would, you would think it's already on the table in discussions, but we're not seeing it publicly. Like it's not being at, uh, whispered in the media, like absolutely nothing on that kind of thing. It is interesting because that could be, like you said, like the ideal solution for people that are very, very close to the edge right now without adding fuel to the housing market and just uh, grandfathering in those that already have mortgages into 40 plus years. Um, and it is interesting because like I've got, you know, I've got different mortgages with different banks and CIBC for some reason are not raising mine. They're actually extending the amortization. Like, how does that work? Like, how are some banks doing that? For example, like one of my properties has, met, it's actually more than 30 years now that the rates have gone up in terms of an amortization. So they called me the other day. They're like, oh, your mortgage is at, I think it was like 60 or something crazy. And it's an mm-hmm. investment property. And like the payments are the same. And they're like, do you want to increase the payments? I'm like, I mean, unless I have to, I probably won't. I'll stay like that. I mean, I don't extend, expect to keep that piece of property anyways for that long. But like, why are some banks doing that versus others? Well, it's it just goes back to that static variable piece. So when you're on a static variable and there's a change in the rates, now all of a sudden the time horizon in which you're paying it back, the mortgage back, you know, gets extended, right? So realistically, when they say, you know, you have 50 years remaining on your amortization now or whatever, because of this interest rate change, it's really just a projection. Like when your term is up in five years, 
you're going to be on whatever term you sign up for next. And that might be 20 years, 25, you might extend it back to 30, but all that stuff really is. Um, if people are seeing that is like, it's just a projection. You know, if it's concerning you that you're never going to pay off your house because of primary residence or something like that, just understand that like you can always pay your house off even without penalty in like five or six years, really, if you take advantage of all the different mechanisms. But yeah, all that really is, is a projection. And that projection will change once you get to the end of your term kind of thing. And just going back to the US um, from a financing perspective, uh, are you recommending then that it's better to do financing in, in the US with a US institution? Or what, what are the sort of options available to people? If you're investing in the US, is that what you mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think you just, it's the same strategy from a high level everywhere. It's what is my my cheapest financing option? Like that's just really where it begins. For some people, it's going to be going uh, through, let's say a Canadian institution and doing cross-border financing. Now getting cross-border financing with like one of the major banks in Canada, that is a US mortgage. They're funding it through their US operation, right? So it is, so realistically, like, yeah, any kind of form of financing you're getting um, is going to be a US form of financing. Even if you're getting it, even if you walked in the door at a Canadian bank, they fund it on their American side, right? So it really just comes down to, you know, what is the cheapest option? We've gotten really creative with some of the stuff we're doing down there. I've gotten some where I use like an RBC cross-border program for my first condo I bought. Down there, we've been linking up with builders and finance and using their financing connections, right? So I'm doing a project where we're building um, nine houses with pools and guest houses and we're partnering with a builder and that builder has a really good financing connection and we're getting terms that, you know, we would never get if we talked to a mortgage broker in the U S right. Same thing with another builder. We're doing three custom houses near uh, the beach in Naples. You know, they're, they're giving us their financing connection on the project too. So what I found in the U S that was such a big difference from working uh, with people in Canada and not to discredit anybody, but the contractors and the builders in the U S the level of professionalism and how much they have things ironed down to a T is just seems way more advanced than up here in Canada. And it might just be that we have so much more red tape that makes it harder to do this stuff. But in the U S it seems to be like, Oh, you want to build, here's the timeline. Here's the prints. Here's the architectural drawings. Like they have everything ready to go. And um, that's been one thing that's been very interesting. Cause like I just kind of alluded to, like I'm building 12 houses in the U S right now. I've built nothing in Canada and it seems easier in the US, right? So it's just one of those one of those things. But I would just just say to anybody, wherever you plan on invest, like you have to do your research, you have to like, you know, go through the process and no, nowhere will be easy. I can't, like this US stuff has not been easy. It's been a lot of research, a lot of networking, things like that. But one, now that we're getting to the finish line, it feels easier, but there was, there was a road to get there kind of thing. Very cool, awesome. Jacob, we are going to go to our lightning round next. So we're going to ask you four questions. You can give us the first answer that comes to mind in 20 seconds or less. Are you ready to play? Yeah. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Butler Mortgages, Canada's number one mortgage brokerage three years in a row. If you need a great mortgage broker to help you with investing in real estate or to help you purchase your next home, reach out to Daniel Patton and Michael Zanzini from Butler Mortgages. You can do that by calling 905-569-8326 or toll free at one 888 and check out their website, butlermortgages.com or by email daniel.patton at butlermortgages.com or michael.zanzini 
at butlermortgages.com. And let's go to the lightning round. All right. Number one, what is the best advice that you have ever received from another investor or at a networking event? I don't know, but there's one quote someone said, an investor that I've always loved, and it's just count the pennies and you will lose the dollars. I think there's way too much of a focus of on frugality in this real estate investor world. It's like frugality got really cool and people I think have taken it way, way too far. And I think the main thing is, you know, count the pennies, you'll lose the dollars. You're gonna have to spend money. There's a lot of burnt costs. There's a lot of sunk costs in real estate. You might hire a coach you didn't get a lot of value out of, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue coaching again in the future and things like that. So I think that uh, counting the pennies and you will lose the dollars is, is one that stuck with me. I like it. Nice, nice quote. Uh, what's your favorite uh, real estate investing resource? Favorite real estate investing resource? I think uh, I think I just love just old school as the... Um, it, well, there's two. So I like Matrix. So I have access to all the real estate listings and looking at all the sales. And I think that helps a lot. If you just look through every pending sale, all this kind of stuff in a certain market over a long period of time, your brain just automatically makes the connections on what is value. For example, like when I bought this piece of land in Naples, like I was like hanging on my couch, with my girlfriend, I see this piece of land. I'm like, this just seems like really good value. I've never bought land. I don't know anything. We buy the piece of land within three days. One builder is offering us $300,000 more than what we bought it for. So like, I feel like if you study the data, your brain makes the connections without you even really realizing. Um, and the other tool is Purview. It's a tool where you can see all the registered loans against properties in Canada. So if you're going into an off market and you're going to a negotiation, it helps a lot to know, does this person have a mortgage? How large of a mortgage? Because you know I might look at 20 multifamily buildings buildings and I find one that has no mortgage against it. And maybe there's just a personal name on title, not a corporation that might be a really good target towards approaching for an off market. So I think those two tools just to have a bit of data on the back end have been huge resources. Yeah, absolutely. I love those resources. And then even figuring out if a VTB may even make sense uh, mm -hmm. and asking for vendor take back instead of going conventional. And uh, the more they own, the easier it, it would get. Right. So mm -hmm. um, awesome. All right. Number three, what is the one attribute that has made you most successful in your opinion? Self-belief is a hundred percent the, the game changer. You know, I think when I started reading the personal development books and things like that, that's when my brain started to go, Oh, like all this is undeniably possible. So I think self-belief is the most important thing because if you, if you know, you are capable of something, then you can't make the excuse for a lot of things. Right. So it, things like that, it's like, I know I'm capable. So now I have to do it. Like if I don't go pursue this thing, I don't achieve this goal. Then like, I'm literally taking it away from my future children because I'm hundred percent capable of doing it. So I think self-belief is, you know, the greatest attribute, whether it's your career, whether it's finding a good relationship, whether it's, you know, real estate investing, like it will take you, you know, wherever you want to go. Nice. And, and what final question, what do you typically do on a Sunday morning? Sunday morning usually starts being very hungover. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I like for me, it's like right now it's NFL Sundays. So for the next 17 weeks, I'm going to be parked on the couch every Sunday. I know it's not very proactive investor uh, focus, but, you know, I like to have a little bit of fun. But, you know, for me, it's really like in the gym, coffee, read a book, or my kind of leisure is uh, is NFL Sundays for sure. Amazing. And there's, a, and there's no, nothing wrong with the, uh customizing your life enough that you can do that that's uh, mm -hmm. 
it, it's, it is about lifestyle, right? This is why we do what we do. And this is why we actually asked about Sunday morning. Cause we hope it is something like you just said, where you're, you know, taking advantage of, of your freedom and your lifestyle and what you've accomplished along the way, which it is. I mean, you do nothing and watch sports. Chill out. Yeah. Sounds Sunday's amazing. A good day. Yeah. Sunday's a good day. <laughs> I do dinner with my parents every Sunday too. So it's just like one of those days where, you know, Monday's coming. That's usually a big day every week, but, um, but yeah, Sundays, you know, should take it for ourselves for sure. Amazing. All right, Jacob, where can our right club community reach out and find out more? Best place to reach out is find me on Instagram at Jacob Perez 10. Just send me a message. I'll hop on a call with you, whether you want to talk about investing mortgages, you want to be a mortgage agent, like literally anything like under the sun, I'm not charging for a call nothing like that. So uh, happy to connect with as many people as possible. Then other than that, you can go to our website at synergymortgagegroup.com and uh, get acquainted with us that way as well. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Jacob, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you on and uh, you are a wealth of knowledge and congrats. And I'm excited to hear more about your U.S. development properties. I, uh, I've, I've got uh, my eye on Florida, so I can't wait to see what you're, you've got going on. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping all levels of real estate investors advance to the next level and help you customize your life. Be sure to tune in next week at rightclub.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you get a few seconds, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps the show get noticed by others like you. And we truly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe.